Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's really just great to be with you today. I am so grateful that you come and join us each and every week. Thanks for that. Now, do you know what time it is? Of course you know what time it is. I always ask you that question because I just want you to get excited about it because I'm excited about it. Well, that's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study 2024 edition. It's Wednesday, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, February 14th. We're continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews. Today, we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, all the way over to chapter 7, verse 14. And we're going to talk about two really awesome topics. The first is God's promises bring hope. And then Melchizedek is going to be compared to Abraham. But before we get to all of that, let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing opportunity we have today to study your word. Thank you for all that have come that are hungry to study as well. Lord, we just want to eat this meat off the bone and just get down into it. So, Lord, lead us today by your spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Now, in the first part of our study today, we're going to cover Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. And this is the God's Promises Bring Hope section, where the writer outlines the assurance which allows Christians to grow in their faith despite persecution. With Abraham, it's a prime example because these verses explain that Christians have the ultimate source of confident hope, the perfect high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to cross over into chapter 7. We're going to look at the first 14 verses, and that's the second part of our study where we'll talk about Melchizedek compared to Abraham. So let's get to it. Hebrews chapter 6, starting with verses 13 and 14. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. In these opening verses, the writer tells us about a well-known example of a person who will inherit God's promises. Well, who is it, and what was God's promise? For these Jewish Christian readers, they would have known that Abraham was the one who would inherit God's promises because of his faith and patience. All the way back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, God had made that promise to Abraham, which said, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. It really wasn't necessary for God to swear that he would keep his promise. Why is that? Because God can't lie or break his word. But God made the promise, swearing by the greatest standard and with the highest accountability possible. He took an oath in his own name, it says. Abraham could have not received any greater assurance than that. Verse 15 reads, Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. You know, waiting can be difficult, no matter what the situation. But because of God's promise to Abraham, he waited. How long did Abraham wait before he received what God had promised? And what does this verse do to encourage you? Abraham waited 25 years, beloved, to receive what God had promised. That's right, 25 years. It started from the time God had promised him a son back in Genesis 17, verse 16, to Isaac's birth, Genesis 21, verses 1, 2, and 3. Because our trials and temptations are often so intense, they seem to last for an eternity. Both the Bible and the testimony of mature Christians encourage us to wait for God to act in his timing, even when our needs seem too great to wait any longer. God's promises always come true, beloved. You can count on him. Verse 16 is next. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Well, here the writer talks more about taking an oath and why that is significant. What is he saying here in verse 16 about that? And how does it apply to us? 
When we consider this verse, the description is timeless, where we can understand it completely. Even today, in a modern wedding ceremony, for instance, the oath or vows that a man and woman take and make to each other are witnessed by other people who are obligated to hold these two people accountable for their promises. Whenever I'm conducting a wedding ceremony, we always have this moment in the beginning of the service where we do kind of what I would call a declaration of intent, and I'll turn to the congregation or all the people that are attending and hold them accountable. I'll ask them, will you do all you can to support this couple in the honor of marriage? And they will reply to the couple, we will. But even more than that, the oath here is made before God, someone greater, in other words, who will hold the person or persons to it. So then it follows that without any question, that oath is binding. That's what it says in the verse. We call on a greater authority because we know that difficulty in keeping promises may wear out our resources and our efforts. Verse 17 is next. It reads, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Here's the question. Why would God bind himself with an oath? What's the purpose of that? You know, humans often need promises sealed with oaths. So God did this for us because he wanted us to be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Abraham did not see his millions of descendants while he was alive, but he did have one son, the beginning of that fulfillment. Abraham not only had countless descendants in the Jewish nation, but his descendants came to include all people of faith. I would encourage you to read Galatians 3 verses 7 through 9. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham should convince believers that all of God's promises to them will also be fulfilled. I don't know about you, but that's a great encouragement to me. Verse 18 is next. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. The question is, in this verse, what are the two great things about God and what assurance do believers have as a result of those things? God confirmed these two things, his promise and an oath. So he confirms his promise with an oath. And these are the two things that are unchangeable because, as the verse says, it is impossible for God to lie. God provides us security because of his own character. Patience is our part whereby we can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Do you see that phrase, we who have fled to him for refuge? Do you see that in the verse? It pictures a person who fled to one of the cities of refuge that provided protection for someone who accidentally killed another person. Numbers 35 is the location I would encourage you to read. Christians also have fled for safety to the place of security and protection from the punishment against them. Remember, this was a time of heavy persecution for the church. Christ provides the safest place, beloved, the hope we count on, the encouragement we need. We've got to, we must hold on to his promise, grasping it, refusing to let go, no matter what might be happening around us. Verses 19 and 20 are next. This rounds out chapter 6. They read this way. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what do you think is the purpose of these last two verses in the chapter? Why would the writer close out chapter 6 with these two verses? What do they say to you? Well, I just love the imagery that the writer uses here. This thing about an anchor, it just conjures this beautiful picture in my mind. 
Our confidence, our hope, it says, is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls, meaning it isn't going anywhere. In other words, we can have security and we can know that God is immovable. Not only does this confidence in God's promises hold us secure, but it leads us through the curtain of heaven into God's inner sanctuary. Now, I'm sure you know the inner sanctuary, it refers to the most holy place in the Jewish temple. A curtain hung across the entrance to this room, and it prevented anyone from entering or even getting a fleeting glimpse of the interior of the most holy place where God resided among his people. The high priest could enter there only once a year, remember, on the Day of Atonement, to stand before God's presence and atone for the sins of the entire nation. But Jesus has already gone in there for us, opening the way into God's presence by his death on the cross. His death tore the curtain in two, allowing believers to come directly into God's presence. What only the high priest could do before Christ did and allows us to do as well. In this way, Christ's high priestly work was different from any other priest. Other priests took people's sacrifices and represented them in the presence of God. Now through Christ, we can approach the throne with confidence. Repeating the theme touched on in chapter 5 verses 5 through 10, the writer again describes Jesus as our eternal high priest in the line of Melchizedek, who we are going to talk about really quickly here in chapter 7 in just a moment. But also, note Jesus' crucial role in communicating and securing God's eternal promises for us. The promises and expression of God's holy character are eternally valid. Jesus activates the promises, eliminating, as it were, the impediment, which is sin, that renders the promises ineffective. By God's promises in Jesus' intercession, believers are incorporated into the family of God. Now that completes chapter 6, and God's promises bring hope. Now we're going to move over to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 14, where the writer introduces his central argument about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Let's start out with verses 1 and 2. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. Here's the opening question of chapter 7. Who was Melchizedek, and why did Abraham give him a tenth of all he had captured in battle? The description of Melchizedek comes from Genesis 14. I would encourage you, beloved, to just stop the video, stop the audio right now, and go and read the entire chapter of Genesis 14. Because what I'm going to talk about as we answer these questions and look at these verses comes right out of Genesis 14. So please take a minute and do that. The description of Melchizedek, as I said, it comes from Genesis 14, specifically verses 18 to 20. He seems to have been an extraordinary man who served his people in both the offices of king and priest. Now, the city of Salem, most scholars and theologians and the research I found indicate that this could be the city of Jerusalem. The title, God Most High, it means that Melchizedek worshipped the one true God. Now, this passage refers to the time when Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against kings. Now, four kings in Abraham's region had united and conquered Sodom and other neighboring cities. Again, Genesis 14, the first 11 verses. Abraham's nephew Lot and his family lived in Sodom, and when Abraham learned that Lot and his family had been captured, Abraham mobilized 318 men for battle. With a surprise attack, Abraham and his tiny band of men liberated Lot and the others that had been captured. Also Genesis 14 verses 12 to 16. After defeating the four kings, Abraham became the greatest power in the land, and Melchizedek met him and blessed him. 
Then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle, and he gave it to Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. By giving the tithe to Melchizedek, Abraham was giving the gift to God's representative. Now, although these two men were strangers to each other, they shared a really important characteristic, and that's this. Both worshipped and served the one God who made heaven and earth. This was a great moment of triumph for Abraham. He had just defeated an army with these four kings and had freed a large group of captives. If he had any doubt in his mind about how he gained that victory and who was behind that victory, Melchizedek set the record straight, Genesis 14:20. Abraham recognized that he and this man worshipped the same God. Now, the original readers of Hebrews would have known that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because he was able to receive tithes and give a blessing. This argument, now, it may not carry the same logical forcefulness for today's readers as it did then, but these early Jewish believers understood absolutely precisely the argument. Verse 3 is next. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Here's the question. What more does this verse tell you about Melchizedek? The Greek phrase used here is a figure of speech, and it's not meant to be taken literally. By saying that there is no record of Melchizedek's father or mother or any of his ancestors, the writer simply means that his lineage, his genealogy is unknown. This also might have meant that he was a person of unknown or obscure birth, maybe even of low birth. The writer uses this point symbolically as a parallel to Jesus Christ and his eternal nature. As it applies to this section of Hebrews, this relates to the nature of the priesthood. Human priests come and go. They're born, they age, they die. Their priesthood can't continue forever. But Melchizedek, as someone with no recorded beginning or end, serves as a metaphor for the priesthood which God promised, one without end, and in a priesthood which lasts forever. Verse 4 is up next. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Our question is, here the writer reiterates his point from verses 1 and 2. I'd encourage you to go back and reread them if you need to. What is he saying here in verse 4? As great as Abraham was, Hebrews says that Abraham recognized how great this Melchizedek was. How did he do that? By giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. The argument follows a really simple logic here. The strength of the argument hinges entirely on this premise. Greater beings receive donations from lesser beings. A very persuasive argument to the original readers. Since Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham, he was greater than Abraham. Because Melchizedek was greater, the author will argue that the priesthood that comes from Melchizedek must be greater than the priesthood that comes from Abraham, who is the patriarch of the entire Jewish nation. In the same way, Jesus is in a class altogether different from the prophets, angels, priests, and patriarchs. Next, let's look at verses 5 and 6. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who were descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. The writer further explains the premise of verse 4 by using Jewish law. In the Old Testament, as God began teaching the Israelites his laws, he also was teaching his people how to worship him. To help in this, he needed ministers to oversee the operations of the tabernacle and to help the people maintain the relationship with God. The descendants of Levi were set apart, dedicated to serving God. Their jobs meant that they did not have time to maintain land, 
So when the tribes were allotted land in the book of Joshua, the Levites were not given any. Instead, God arranged for the other tribes to meet the Levites' needs through donations. So the law of Moses commanded that the Levites collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel. This was their way of getting support. They were collecting from fellow Jews, their own relatives. It says, who are also descendants of Abraham. In other words, the gifts were coming from their equals. Now Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. To understand this argument, we need to understand that Abraham represents his entire nation. Israel's first high priest, Aaron, descended from Abraham. So if Abraham recognized Melchizedek as his superior, then Melchizedek is also superior to all of Abraham's descendants, including the line of priests. This makes Melchizedek's priesthood greater than the Jewish priesthood. Melchizedek was not related to Levi, and neither was Jesus, who was born of the tribe of Judah. The priests and Levites owed their position to their birth. They owned their receiving of tithes to provisions in God's law. But Melchizedek stands in history as a solitary figure. He was given the tithe, not because of provision in the law, but because Abraham recognized his greatness. Melchizedek, in turn, acknowledged his superior position as he placed a blessing upon Abraham. Then verse 7 continues, And without question, the person who has power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Well, in light of what we just talked about in the previous verses, what conclusion can you come to here in verse 7? Well, what I glean here is that Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High and had the power to give a blessing. So he must be superior to Abraham, who was blessed. A blessing was a significant ritual passed along from fathers to sons, as well as from prominent to less prominent people. So it follows that the one who has the power to bless is obviously greater than the one who's being blessed. Next, let's look at verses 8 through 10. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are, because we're told he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came from was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. The strength of the writer's argument continues in these verses with some assumptions that might not be as persuasive today as they were back in the first century. What are those assumptions? And what do they mean? I think there's two here. First, the writer compares Melchizedek to Levitical priests who would receive the tithes, but eventually they would die. Because scripture does not record Melchizedek's death, it's as if he lives on. Because there's no record of his death, his priesthood extends forever, in contrast to the Levites who died and passed on their service to their sons. This is how Melchizedek resembled Christ, who really does live and serve forever. What the author asserts about Melchizedek Jesus fulfills in person and power. Having died on the cross and risen again, Jesus lives forever. Now, the second assumption considers that Melchizedek is compared to Levitical priests who paid a tithe to him through their ancestor Abraham. As Levi wasn't yet born, the Levites are represented by their ancestor Abraham. When Abraham gave Melchizedek one-tenth of what he collected in battle, the unborn Levites at the time, and would eventually come, also participated in this action in a sense. In this way, Melchizedek would also be greater than the Levites and the Levitical priests. This principle of corporate solidarity was very popular in Eastern and Middle Eastern customs and is often seen in the Old Testament when blessings and punishments are given to sons' sons. Abraham was a great man and his descendants served as acceptable priests, but Melchizedek was greater and so his priesthood was greater. Verse 11 is next. It said, So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, 
could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? Well, here the writer poses a very interesting question related to what he's been talking about previously. What's that question that he brings up here? It's really interesting. I think the writer is trying to show how the Levitical priesthood and the ritual system of sacrifice were insufficient to save the people. So that system was merely a preparation, a picture of what would come and would be fulfilled. If the Levitical priesthood had been sufficient, the writer asks, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? Well, that's a really good question. The Levitical priesthood could not allow people to approach God because the animal sacrifices alone really could do nothing to remove sin. So God's purposes could not be achieved from the Old Testament priesthood because all along it had been meant as a shadow of what was to come. When this better way would come, the old way would be obsolete. A new way would mean a new law and a new system. God could not simply provide another human priest. Instead, he provided something, or better yet, someone new. Verse 12 continues, And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. What do you think the writer is saying when he said that if the priesthood is changed, then the law also needs to be changed? What's that all about? Provisions for the Levitical priesthood were given in the law, including duties, ordination, clothing, etc. But the law could not foresee a change in the priesthood, such as a new priest arising from the tribe of Judah, as Jesus did. So when the priesthood is changed, the verse said, the law must also be changed to permit it. Few things were as stable as the Old Testament law. Kings came and went, high priests died and made way for new high priests. But the law never changed. The Old Testament law is not God's final word. However, it was, in fact, preparation. Jesus Christ himself became that final word. The law was not changed, but rather was fulfilled, rendering the ceremonial parts of the law, things like that system for animal sacrifice, out of date. The ceremonial laws have been superseded by Christ himself, who was the final and sufficient sacrifice. Christ was not just another priest in the old system. The entire system was changed with Christ as the high priest in the new system. For readers who were close to falling back into Judaism, remember we talked about that in the very beginning study of Hebrews, these words would remind them that their old Jewish ways had been fulfilled and been replaced by Christ. And now for our last verses today, the finishing verses 13 and 14, here we go. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe, whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. Our final question today is this, what is the writer's point in these closing verses? By law, only Levites could serve as priests. The writer then says, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel and was the largest tribe, in fact. It was the tribe from which most of Israel's kings had come from. Later, Judah was one of the few tribes to return to God after a century of captivity under a hostile foreign power. Also, Judah was prophesied as the tribe through which the Messiah would come. I'd encourage you to look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is only one example, but an undisputed one, that the Old Testament ceremonial law cannot bring salvation. The descendants of Levi were made to be priests, but God proclaimed that the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. This is further proof that the Levitical priesthood was just temporary. The better high priest was, in fact, coming. Beloved, that brings us to the end of today's study. What incredible meat on the bone this was today. I hope you've enjoyed this. 
If anything is confusing to you, I would encourage you to go back and re-listen or reread again. I know this was a bit intense, but there's just so much information about Melchizedek and Abraham, and we're not done with Melchizedek. He'll be coming back soon. We talked about the priests and priesthood and all of the relation therein. Y'all did so good, and I'm so proud of you for hanging in there. But this isn't, as I said, the last time you're going to hear about Melchizedek. In fact, next time we'll be talking about how Christ is like Melchizedek. We're going to get into that even more with Hebrews 7, verses 15 to 28. We'll finish out the chapter. I want to thank you again for being with us today. It's been a joy to have you. Have a great rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here. Until next time, though, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.